Romans chapter 12 says to love one another with brotherly affection and to outdo one another in showing honor. I don't know if you all catch that verse or not, but I'll just read it again. Love one another with brotherly affection and then outdo one another with brotherly affection and showing honor to one another. Um, So in the spirit of the competitive nature of this verse, uh, I wanted to start out this morning uh, by honoring uh, a brother of of ours, uh, uh, honoring him, our friend, our brother, our elder, Pastor Bill, who I know who's not here this morning. He's, they're visiting their great-grandchild, uh, so we want to be in prayer for them as they, they travel or enjoying their visit. But I owe him a debt of thanks and, and gratitude for, for preaching these past weeks on prayer. I'm, I'm thankful, I'm grateful, and I was, I was humbled by the way that he presented uh, prayer to us. And uh, you certainly could see the, uh, the, the tone of his heart and, and how he prays, and I think how he even prays for us. And so um, I don't think I could even do this if he was here because he probably wouldn't like it, but we, we certainly owe our, our brother a debt of gratitude in that and leading us on how to pray in, in a very humble manner. And so I, I hope that uh, the Lord will continue to um, uh, fertilize and, and give us fruit in that area as, as a people. This morning, we're going to start a new sermon series I've been telling you all about. Uh, I don't know when I started telling you about it, but I've, I've known this is where we were going to go since uh, probably September, uh, this past September, and this will be an eight-week-long series, so I invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Hosea, to the book of Hosea. It is in the Old Testament. It is an Old Testament book between Daniel and Joel. So if you, Joel, um, I wanted to say Joel because I didn't want him to be confused. Uh, between Daniel and Joel, right, there is Hosea. Joel was like, that's stupid. <laughs> between those two books, Joel and Hosea, or Joel and uh, Daniel is the book of Hosea. I wanted to start off first by answering the question, why Hosea and why now? Um, and first is very simply, very practical is this, is that I want us as a church, as I know your elders do, that we would have a firm grasp of the, the entirety of, of the Scripture. Um, it's easy to get stuck in the New Testament. Not a bad place to be stuck. I get that, right? It's like uh, your car breaking down at Krispy Kreme, right? Um, it's not a bad place to, be, to get stuck into the New Testament. But, Uh, Just as we get stuck in the New Testament, we'll stay there. We will also do the same things in the areas of our lives that we're comfortable with. So we want to gravitate to the places and the areas that we're comfortable. In the New Testament, for most part, we're we're pretty comfortable with. But that's exactly why we need to be pushed out a little bit. It's exactly why I need to be pushed out in the study and the exposition and looking at very hard texts, such as the book of Hosea. So my approach, when I, pick a, uh, when I pick a book on what we will study next, or theme, or topic, mostly books and what we will be studying, um, I, don't, I don't do this all the time, so don't hold me to it, but what I do is, is I want us to kind of go back from New Testament to Old Testament, and just go back and forth on those two areas. So in, in that vein, it's pretty much what we will be doing as a church, we will be uh, going back and forth from 
New Testament and the Old Testament. And since we already covered Ephesians, we will now jump into the Old Testament, into the book of Hosea. So that's reason number one. Second thing is uh, Ephesians was, uh, gave us an awesome taste of the grace of God. It, it gave us some very majestic and beautiful, as I remember from the very first sermon that I preached on it, it was a sublime taste of the mystery of the gospel, quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones on on Ephesians. It gives us a, a taste of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And what the book of Hosea does is it takes God's grace and it illustrates it for us. It, it gives us a, a living parable. So, so as we, we, we saw week after week in Ephesians, these plates full of the gospel with nutrients and health, it shaped and fashioned us in understanding our new identity in Christ, being driven by grace, Hosea then will show us that grace and show us that, that gospel in an in a incredibly awkward and difficult illustration and picture. So that's what we will, that's the second reason because of, because of what we started there. And so what we need to do is we, we now look back, we now look back on the gospel 700 years even before, uh, before the cross. We're going we're gonna to see the gospel and we're going to see it through through the eyes of Hosea. And in that, we'll see the bigger story of salvation history. We'll see how God has always been working this plan out to bring about His grace and come at the right time. And the third reason is I want us to see the themes of Hosea. And I was just kind of pointing to that for just a second. And this is what we'll mainly be talking about today is the theme of Hosea. And that is the passion of God. I want us to see the, the passion of God I want us to see what, what God cares about. I want, you to, want us to see what God feels. I want us to see the holiness of God. I want us to see the, the love of God and how they, they, they run simultaneously together and they're not at odds. These two wonderful, glorious attributes of the character and nature of God. And in these next eight weeks, we will unpack those themes as we go through this book. And some of you might be asking, why only eight weeks? You did 40 weeks in Ephesians, and, and that's only six chapters. And, and now you're going to do eight weeks for Hosea, and it's 14 chapters. It's a good question. Well, expositional preaching does not always have to be. Verse by verse, certainly can be and should be in many ways and many times when it's appropriate, but it doesn't have to go verse by verse, taking one or two, three verses at a time. But expositional preaching is taking the text and exposing it. And exposing the text to us in its original meaning. And then taking that, the text in its original meaning and then making it the point of the, pas- of the sermon. Taking the passage, keeping it in its original meaning, understanding, exposing the context and the point and what the, the writer is getting at and what God is driving at, and then making that the application or making that the implication of the sermon. So now for us in Hosea, these eight weeks, it will be enough for us to understand this book and give us a great understanding of God's love, God's holiness, and most importantly, the passion of God. So we have the questions. Everybody got the questions down? Good. Let's get going. Turn to Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Bere, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, 
kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And that's where we're stopping today. That's where we're stopping today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, as we unpack even these statements, help us to understand the context. Give us eyes to see your word this morning. Give us eyes to to see, give us the ears to hear your spirit as it leads us and guides us through this passage. I know, God, that we would be at the end, bring glory to you and how we reflect on your goodness and your love and your mercy to save a people such as ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the Old Testament is a very neglected part of the Bible, right? I mean, we... We kind of started off talking about, you know, the one of the reasons why I wanted us to, to go into an Old Testament passage, an Old Testament text, but the Old Testament is a, is a neglected part of the Bible. We, we rarely hear sermons on the Old Testament, and when we do, it's mostly about how to be better, or how to be this kind of, how to have faith like David, and, and, and be as strong as, as uh, who's the strong guy, Samson, and, and have the the, the, the faith of Gideon and things like that. It, 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 we hear sermons like that, and it's often a neglected part of the Bible, and it's also very much misunderstood. It's parts of the Bible, the Old Testament, where some people wish they could just rip out and ignore. In fact, they do. It's ignored as, as this isn't really God's word. Because, number one, I don't, I don't understand it, but, but this God in this Old Testament, he's, he's mean. He's judgmental, he's angry, he's unloving. They only want a loving God of the New Testament, which in a sense what they really want is they want a prosperity God. And the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament being the same God, same character and nature in the Old as is in the New we cannot forget about the Old Testament. It's still a part of God's Word. We cannot neglect it. We cannot avoid it. We can't turn from it. And if we do, it will only debilitate us. It will malnourish us. We will have this unbalanced diet, not understanding the complexity, even the fullness of the New Testament if we do not grasp even the Old Testament. Three-fourths of the Bible Three-fourths of the Bible. You can, you can do it right now. Look in your Bible. You can open it up, stop at Matthew, go back, and hold it right there. Three-fourths of the Bible is the Old Testament. Three-fourths. Thousands and thousands of years covered in the Old Testament. The New Testament only covers about 100 years. It's very important for us to get this of the, of the Old Testament, have a, a greater, completer understanding of the New Testament. We must grasp the Old Testament and understand its story. Pastor Mark Dever put it like this. I have the quote, maybe they'll put it up. Uh, Pastor Mark Dever put it like this. He said, The Old Testament presents the riddle to which Jesus Christ is the answer. You won't understand the answer nearly as well without understanding the riddle. And so that's what we're doing. We're looking back to understand. And Hosea, being a small part of that riddle, is a small part of that riddle for us understanding the great answer, Jesus Christ. So let's sum up the riddle to get us up to Hosea so that we can understand the context of Hosea and the preaching and the prophecy 
that Hosea gives us over these next couple weeks. So let's sum up the riddle. It's a story. It's a story that begins at the beginning of all time when God first made the world. He created a beautiful world. He created a world that was perfect, a perfect world where God then created humanity and he placed humanity that was perfect, humanity was perfect at this time, in a unique, different from all of other creation. He took humanity that was created in his image and he placed humanity in this perfect place this perfect world in the garden. So that we would be, that's a humanity, would be a people that could know him. So that we could be a people that would enjoy him. So that we would be a people that would love him. And that he would love us. But humanity, we rejected God. We rejected his authority. We rejected his rule. And we rejected his love. We wanted to be something more. We wanted to be like him. And we, all of humanity, we walked away from this relationship choosing sin instead of our loving creator. And so the curse of sin and death fell over all of humanity. And now all of creation suffers under this curse. Our relationship with God is now a, is now a mess. All relationships now are a mess because of sin. Selfishness, self-centeredness, self-righteousness, pride, anger, strife, all brought now into relationship because of sin, rejecting our Creator. But God was not done yet. Well, the Bible would have stopped right there, right? God wasn't done. He had a plan. In fact, what we learned from Ephesians chapter 1, it was a plan from the foundation of the world. God had a plan, a plan of renewal, to take, to take that people and to renew them. To, to renew them. So, so God called a man named Abram. God called a man named Abram. He called Abram to himself, and he, and he promised to Abram, Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great people that I could once again call you my own. I can put my name upon you. I will be your God and you will be my people. A people that God could bless. That could, people that God would love and cherish. And so God took this man, Abram, and he pulled him out of Iraq and changed his name to Abraham, which means father of many. And we know the story of Abraham. We know how the story went. Abraham, Sarah, he was already pretty old, right? He was pretty old. God made the promise, and he's like, all right, I'm waiting for it. But we know through all that strife, throughout the physical limitations, Throughout their doubts and their fears and even the sin of Abraham and Sarah, God did exactly what he promised. He gave him an heir. He gave him Isaac. So Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons made up the, the, the descendants now of this, this new nation. 
And Jacob was also given a new name. Jacob was given a, a new name. The name Israel. Israel wrestles with God. Wrestles with God. Now Israel, Jacob, needing to take his family and escape famine, the land in which they were at, sought refuge and rescue from the nation of Egypt. Now what we know from that story beforehand, what the Lord was doing was that God was going to providentially bring about salvation and rescue for his people who were undeserved through a man named Joseph. Joseph, one of, those, one of those brothers who was rejected and despised by his brothers, sold into slavery so that he would die. A brother that they wished to never see again. And yet God, in his providence, in his sovereignty over Joseph's life, preserved him so that one day he would be raised up to the second in command of all of Egypt, the, the greatest nation on, on earth, the most powerful nation on earth, so that when God's people who did not deserve mercy or did not deserve any grace, would use Joseph to bring mercy to his people. God fulfilling his promises once again. So now they are now moved into into Egypt. The family now is is in Egypt, and this family began to flourish. It began to grow, and no longer were they just a family, but they were now becoming a nation, a nation of of millions. God blessed that people over those years. And soon they fell out of favor with the great power of Egypt. In fact, the Bible says that Pharaoh no longer knew who Joseph was and knew the favor of Joseph. And they sought the fear, seen the fear in in this people because they became a great power and they enslaved them. They enslaved Israel In over 400 years, imagine, 400 years, God's people cried out for deliverance. They cried out for for rescue, that God would have mercy on them and hear their cries. And God, knowing that, hearing His cries, knowing His promise, seeking to bring about once again renewal and rescue of Egypt, He answers prayers by sending Moses. Raising up Moses and God exercising his great power and his authority and his might over is over Egypt, he just flexes his muscles and, and ten plagues fall upon this land. And it puts the greatest nation to its knees. And they were very intentional plagues. I wish we one day we'll not go through them all. Very intentional to go right after the heart of, of Egypt. Once again, through Moses, God told his people, you will be my people and I will be your God. And God freed his people and he carried them to the promised land, to the land of Canaan, to the land that we call Palestine. And so after Israel's exodus, God continued to deliver them and provide for them Continue to uh, deliver them from the hand of the enemies around them. Continue to give them food, give them nourishment and provision and shelter. But Israel, as we've read, continued to disobey God. They grumbled. They complained. 
They didn't trust God, nor did they trust Moses. They would turn from God. We know the story of the golden calf. Sin still had its chains on its people. But God had a plan. Forty years in the desert wandering and waiting for the promised land because of sin, because of that golden calf, that rejection of God. Joshua then was raised up and led them into the promised land, conquering the enemies of Israel. And yet still even after that, years and years of sin and rebellion against God, breaking covenant with the Lord. God would, they would cry out in sin as they're being oppressed. And God would give them and deliver them through judges. But in the end, God's people demanded a king. A king to, to, to lead them. A king that would, that would help them look better. And if God, if we had a king, then we could follow you. And so God granted their prayer and their wish. And he gave them a king, their first king, Saul. And Saul started out pretty good. Saul started out pretty well and was doing, doing good before the Lord, but before time was over in his reign, he did evil before the Lord, and God withdrew his favor from him. And God withdrew from him. But the next king, which seemed to be Israel's greatest king, King David, he brought peace and prosperity to the land. Peace because he conquered enemies, and prosperity because they conquered enemies. And so David brought peace and prosperity to the, to the land. And for the most part, David was this, was this ideal picture of, of, of what the king should look like. He's kind of that, that standard, that, that foundation that every king of Israel from, from now on should, should look like. In fact, even King David is a, a type of Christ that we even look at and say he's a type of the Christ to come, the, the greater king to come. But he wasn't perfect. He's a sinner. And then there was his son, Solomon. We talked about Solomon last week, didn't we? Solomon was a pretty good king. He was wise. Remember, that's what he asked the Lord. Lord, give me, give me wisdom. And so God blessed him materially more than any other king. His riches were, were just beyond fathom. We could not understand, but in that prosperity... In that prosperity, in that blessing, Solomon's heart became divided. Solomon's heart became divided, and he disobeyed God. He disobeyed God. He, he married foreign wives. And in those, those foreign wives, he, he then worshipped their, their foreign gods. But through the blessing of the Lord... Through the blessing that God gave, he, he had all this stuff. He began to build things. And he was commissioned to build the temple, right? And he did, and boy, did he build a temple. And he built other things. He built himself a new house because David's house that David built for himself wasn't good enough. And so he began to, to build and build and build. He had all these building projects. And then there was Solomon. His, he was the lasting peace, right? He was even a peaceful king. But there were still tensions in the land. There's still tension that was building because as he was building, who was doing the building? It wasn't Solomon. It was the people. And when Solomon died, his son took over. 
his son Rehoboam. And now we're getting to the kings we've probably never heard of. There's Rehoboam. And Rehoboam followed the plan of his dad and the lifestyle of his dad to continue with those building projects so that Israel would look great. And when the people confronted him and said, hey, king, just ease up on us a little bit, he doubled down and said, no, I'm the king. I'm the king. I'm even a greater king than my dad. And in that, there was rebellion. The kingdom divided. The kingdom, a great civil war, and and the kingdom divided. The rebellious people led by a man named uh, Jeroboam. In 930, the 12 tribes of Israel were now split. And split in an interesting way. Two tribes on the south and ten tribes in the north. And ten tribes in, in the north. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Sometimes the northern kingdom is called Israel. So a lot of times when I'm saying Israel now for the rest of the day, I'm mostly speaking of the northern kingdom and Judah being the southern kingdom because that, that was the main, that was the main uh, uh, tribe in, in the southern kingdom. Talk about a family in turmoil. It was a mess. A disaster. But the Lord had a plan. The Lord had a plan. He was going to be faithful to His promise. His promise to, to, to Adam and Eve and His promise to, to Abraham. He would fulfill and bring about renewal to His people. Seems like unlikely. Jeroboam, continue with history here, Jeroboam with his newly established nation, he established his capital in Samaria. Right, that should even maybe bring up some ideas in the New Testament when we're talking about the people of Samaria. Right? That's the division that we're talking here. They don't go into Samaria because they don't think that they're real Jews. Remember? So there's a form of racism even between the, the, the brothers, between the two families, the two, the two kingdoms. And so he built the capital in Samaria. And you would think that this would be a great chance for Israel to turn from Judah, who was being disobedient, evil of the Lord, and repent before the Lord, and, and do what the Lord wants them to do. But that was not the case. Jeroboam, instead, instead of in, embracing Yahweh God and the law of, of, of Moses and the law of God, what he did was he rejected all that because he hated Judah so much, he wanted nothing to do with them, and he didn't want his people to feel like they were serving the God of Judah. And so guess what Jeroboam did? He created his own religion. And you're, you wouldn't believe this if it wasn't in the Bible. You, 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 the, the irony is just ridiculous. But guess what he set up as his gods, as their gods now? Two golden calves. I mean, talking about not knowing the Word of God, right? Knowing that, that it doesn't end well when you lay yourself prostrate before a golden calf. And actually, it doesn't matter what it was. So there's two idols, and they, them up, they split them up, one in the northern part of the northern kingdom, one in the southern part of the, the southern kingdom. What a dumpster fire that was being set up in Israel. The next five kings after Jeroboam, they all came to power through bloodshed. 
from killing each other. Like things aren't going well in your country if your if your rulers are being offed by someone else. Right? That's what's amazing about the United States, by the way. I mean, you heard it on inauguration day, the, the peaceful transfer of power, because it's so rare in history. And here we have here bloodshed, gross idolatry. Jeroboam didn't come close to setting that up. And by the way, in t- verse one, that is not the Jeroboam that we are going to talk about. Gross idolatry. And then there came a king after the next five. There was a a, a guy named Omri. And Omri became a king around 880 B.C. So 930 was the split. 830 was was when he became king. And it was once again through, through, through great civil war in the north. Great civil war. And he was cruel and he was wicked. And then his son took over. His son was Ahab. Y'all remember Ahab? Ahab who married the... Well, uh, married the, the foreign, foreign wife Jezebel. We remember Ahab, and we remember Je- Jezebel because Ahab wanted to buy Naboth's vineyard. And Naboth said, no, I'm not selling you my vineyard. It's like the only thing I got that's worth a darn. And the king went all pouting and crying because Naboth wouldn't sell me in the field. And his wife Jezebel came and said, what are you crying? You're the king. Go take it. Kill the sucker. What's he going to do? What's anybody going to do? You're the king. He's like, oh yeah, I am the king. So he goes and he has Naboth murdered. Naboth's vineyard in the land of Jezreel, which is very important for us in, in, in Hosea. So just kind of keep these things in your mind. And then Jezebel also introduced Israel to some gross idolatry. The worship of the god Baal. And Baal was a fertility god, or a god of, of fertility. And we're going to talk more about that in our study of Hosea. And so just to kind of bring alongside so you guys can understand context, this is where Elijah and Elisha come in, right? You remember that? This is where Elijah and Elisha come in, and they oppose that false religion and, and, and worship, and we see that in, the, in, in First and Second Kings. And then there's Ahab's children who, who come after him, and they fall in the same line as Ahab until God ro- raised up an army officer named Jehu. And the people were sick of it, and Jehu rebelled against the family of Omri, and he wiped them all out. In fact, Jehu, when he took power through, through some incredible bloodshed, some, um, he wiped out the whole family. Of, of Ahab and, and Jezebel and all of their, their grandchildren. Seventy grandsons he killed. And you wouldn't believe the land. Jezreel. Happened in Jezreel. The bloodshed of wiping them out. And once again, we, ha- we seem like to have this, this, this thing of, okay, now Jehu's in power, and now, now Jehu can hit the reset button and start over and turn to the Lord and repent and, and bring the people back to righteousness and faithfulness and to bring him back from idol worship, but he doesn't. He wipes out all the priests and the, uh, the, uh, uh, the prophets of Baal and, and knocks down the high places, but he restores the golden calves. Jehu's son takes over, and then his grandson, then his great-grandson, but they were not much better than Omri. They just had different gods, or Ahab. And then there's Jehu's grandson, who was Jeroboam the second? Jeroboam's son, or Joash's son, I'm sorry, was Jeroboam the second, which is the king that we see here in our passage this morning. 
You see that there in verse 1. So now Jehu, though he was wicked, though he was wicked, he brought some stability to the nation. And, and those next kings, because they weren't killing each other, because they were family, now that wasn't always the test. They were always killing each other regardless of their family. But this family wasn't. There was around 40 years of, 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 of seeming prosperity in Israel. Seeming prosperity. In fact, it was a prosperity that was close to David and Solomon. And so they think everything is, is going good. Economy's booming. Trading, commerce were moving. People were getting rich. The nation grew. Their status and their wealth grew. They looked good before everyone else. Even Judah was looking at Israel going, man, what do they got going on right? What are they doing? This is the climate and the culture by which Hosea now steps in to be the prophet of God and to proclaim the judgment of God on his people. I mean, how do you, how, how do you preach judgment in time of prosperity? I mean, everything else tells me everything's good. Everything in this world's telling me that everything's good and you're telling me that God's upset with me? But behind the scenes, what we know, behind the scenes, while Israel thought everything was, was peachy, the time of prosperity was quickly going to change because of their rebellion, their dishonoring of God, and the disgusting ways in which they rejected God. There was a nation. There was a nation that God was raising up to judge his people. There was a nation God was raising up that would judge his people. And so in this, this false sense of peace and prosperity during this time, there was a tide that would soon rise called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians would soon come in and judge Israel and destroy Israel and wipe Israel off the face of the map. In 722 B.C., that's when it happened. That's when Israel fell. After Jeroboam II, just to give you a little more context, there was, and, and Hosea was there during this time. He, he was prophesying during this time. After Jeroboam II, he was, in the, he was a king for 40 years, so Hosea was preaching, and then there was six other kings after Jeroboam II. Once again, each of those six kings, they were all killed off. I mean, there was like a month. It actually Bible says one month this guy was stabbed by this guy and he became king. And then two months later someone killed him. And six kings within 30, a 30 year period. And at the end of that 30 year period the northern kingdom fell. Thus removing them from the promised land. The ten tribes of Israel gone. So you know why I gave so much time to the history? I gave so much time to the history so that we would understand Hosea. So we can understand the context. We can understand where, where he is stepping in to history. So we can step into history ourselves and see why he is saying the things that he is saying. And we need to see this. We need to see the, the reasons and the purpose behind this, this prophecy so that we would, in order, we can properly interpret and apply this, this book. Because if we don't, we will read Hosea and we'll just see God as being angry. We'll see God as being mean, and we'll see God as being judgmental. But what's stepping into history, we now can see that this people was wicked. They utterly rejected God to worship other things, to worship 
Baal, to worship idols, to worship their desires and their needs. And it was evil. And they were guilty of breaking the covenant with God. And brothers and sisters, we just walked through thousands of years. And they were doing it for thousands of years. Let us not be guilty in saying that God is not patient. Thousands of years as people were spit in front of his eye, rejecting him. It wasn't you, God, that delivered us. It was this golden calf that did. Rejection of God, saying that we don't want your love. We don't want your mercy. We don't need it. And when we get to Hosea, we'll see this. We'll see this over and over again, how God speaks about Israel so that we cannot say it's not fair. Now, Hosea, like the Old Testament, is generally avoided. Rarely preached or taught. Some some of us may never heard a sermon from Hosea. But it's got a couple strikes against it. Strike one, it's in the Old Testament. Strike two, they call it a minor, they call him a minor prophet. So some people are like, that's eh, minor, meaning it's meaningless, right? Or something like that. And that's not what that means. That means it's just shorter. And then number three, the third strike against Hosea is that it can be strange. It can make us feel strange. It can make us feel awkward because this unimaginable love story between Hosea and Gomer just makes us uncomfortable. It makes us feel uncomfortable. It makes us think about things and go places that we don't want to go. But what Hosea does in taking us to those places is that it shows us the passion of God. And it intends for us as a church to see these things, what God is most passionate about. His love, His holiness, His commitment. We see God's heartbreak on display in Hosea. We see the the heartbreak of of God in in Hosea. We we so only want to talk about how we feel. Like what we feel and what we want is most important. How I feel is my favorite subject. We always get in a conversation with people and we want to throw our opinions in because that's how I feel. And we think that it is our right to exclaim that this is how I feel and everybody's got to accept how I feel. In our age, this is our idol, how we feel. This is the Baal of our age. It is the the golden calf of our age. But what Hosea tells us over and over and over again is not about how we feel or how Israel feels, but it tells us how God feels. It says, people, this is how I feel. This is how I feel about your evil. This is how I feel about your sin and your wickedness and your rejection of my great love towards you and my provision towards you. It lays before us God's heartbreak. God's heartbreak when seeing a spouse that has cheated on him. You see, the gospel isn't some mechanical process that we just put in inputs and then we take outputs. The gospel is deeply relational. It's deeply relational because it's working to this to renew a relationship with God. 
with God between a broken and rebellious people. And Hosea teaches us the gospel is deeply personal. And that the gospel is heartfelt to God. It is His passion. Hosea shows us the passion of God through prophecy. As people were disobedient, they turned to idols. Hosea warns them of the coming, the coming judgment of the Lord. We see that warning, as we talked about, is fulfilled in the Assyrians as they conquered Israel. But even in all that judgment, all is not lost. In fact, there's still hope. And there's a lot of hope in Hosea. Not all hope isn't lost. The hope wasn't a hope that, that maybe that Israel would, 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 would come to their senses and, and in their own ability would repent and that, then that God would defer his judgment. No. Judgment was coming. It was there. The hope was God's continued promise and his hope of renewal. In fact, in Hosea it says, it says that to heal the wounds of their disobedience and restore them in the land. So that through judgment, listen to this, that through judgment, through the judgment of God's people, he brings salvation. Hosea, Hosea focuses then on, as a the great theme, I think, of Hosea's passion of God, mercy of God, but in all that, what's unearthed is their spiritual idolatry, their spiritual infidelity, and their unfaithfulness uh, to God. It is an unfortunate theme. It's an unfortunate topic that we will, that we will deal with and that we will, we will go through. But it was very personal to the Lord, as we just talked about. And all the language throughout Hosea, we see that it's very personal language. He talks about faithfulness, and he talks about knowing God. And, and that, that knowing is, that, is intimacy. In fact, it's used as almost, as, not almost, it's used the same word, sexual intimacy. Knowing them. And I know you. You are my people. And so he knows. He's speaking very relational faithfulness, knowing God. The, the, the covenantal name of God is used twice as many times as the generic form of God, Elohim. It's a very personal message to Hosea. And it becomes very personal to Hosea when God uses Hosea's own experience of marriage to an adulterous wife. It becomes this real-life parable. But it just goes to show how far God goes in his refusal to give up on his people and to fulfill his promise and to be faithful as we see redemption in chapter 3. It's harsh. It's hard for us to understand. So here's the thing about Israel's infidelity. It's not that they became irreligious. Right? We, are, we kind of talked about that. It's not that they became irreligious. The problem wasn't that they stopped worshiping God. They didn't stop worshiping God and just go after the golden calf or the Baals. The problem was their divided loyalties. Israel, as the unfaithful wife, shared her love with both God and the idols. And her husband could not share and support those affairs of, with other lovers because God is holy. 
And as, as he is holy, God demands holiness and faithfulness to his people. And sin, all sin, is nothing less than spiritual adultery before the Lord. I'm going to close with this. This, this is a harsh story, and it's a hard story, but we have to see it. We have to feel this story. We have to relate to this story. We have to be offended. We have to be hurt. We have to feel what it means to be cheated on. We have to feel betrayal and angry and being dirty and being let down. Because it is in that moment we will hear the words of the prophet Nathan to David. You are that man. We are the murderer. We are the adulterer. We are Israel. I am Israel. And this is why we must see the cross for what it is. That the perfect, spotless Lamb of God was put on the cross. A punishment for the worst of sinners was ridiculed, mocked, and beaten, and shamed publicly, and nailed to the cross. He bore the wrath that was deserved us, a punishment that was due to others. He took upon Himself. The Gospel demands this, that we understand that the cross, before that we can understand what the, that the cross is something for you, you must understand that the cross was something done by you. And you were it. You were it. You were there. We're not just standing off to the side as innocent people, but we are Israel. And this book is going to highlight the holiness of God and the love of God. And it's going to expose our sin. It's going to expose the depths of our, of our sinfulness. In a sense, it's kind of that, that Ephesians 2, 1-10 all over again. Because this shows us the level of our, of our sin and it magnifies the grace of God. And my hope that as we walk through this book together that it will expose our sin, the level and the depth of our sin, but it won't leave us there because it will teach us then to hate our sin become passionately hating our sin as God does. And then it will move us to love what God loves. And to be obedient and to be holy. To walk in holiness. So brothers and sisters, as we approach this, this series over these coming weeks and as we end this morning, our only hope as a people is found at the cross of Jesus Christ, which was the fulfillment of of God's plan. God's plan to bring about a renewal of His people. And it is only at the cross that any of us can be, could stand justified before the Lord. Stand justified of our spiritual adultery and infidelity so that we can be His people and that He will be our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. We pray now that as we respond, O oh Lord, would you show us, would you show us our sin, and not just the individual sins, but show us the level and the depths of our sinfulness, 
that every point of sinfulness, no matter which place we may grade it as serious or not, is all spiritual adultery against you, O God. And that our only hope of rescue, our only hope of atonement does not come through sacrifice. It doesn't come through duty. But it comes through the atonement that was given to us by your Son on the cross. That every bit of my sinfulness was more than enough. Was more than enough to have your son die. So I pray you'd help us to feel as Hosea feels as we go through this. Deep, deep things of hurt. But oh, the great goodness of your love and renewal and redemption. We pray these things in your name. Amen.